HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Learn more at fultonstallmarket.org. This week on Meet and 3, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they, they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food. And so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Monisha Kushalani, CFO at Hue Products, a better-for-you snacks and confections company known for their incredible chocolate bars and hunks. Monisha has spent her career leading and managing teams and delivering on projects anchored in long-term financial sustainability. She's led the exit and acquisition of three companies, including Sir Kensington's, to leading consumer products companies in the industry. We talk a lot about the front of house on this show, marketing, brand, identity, and of course, sales, but finance is critical and having your money ducks in a row can make a good company a stellar one. So welcome, Monisha. Thanks for having me on, Allison. I'm I'm really excited. I was just saying when, um, so the show is recorded at four and generally I tell guests to like come on to the link at 3.55 so we can have like a little chit chat before. And I know with all of like the finance and the ops people, they're going to be on at like 3.55 on the dot. <laughs> and with like the founders and the sales and the marketing folks, no offense, I am one of them. We're like 3.58, 3.59. Um, so I was, I came on at 3.56 and I was like, I know she's going to be there. And you were, and you were. Um, 
So, you know, the, the big question to start off with is, you know, have you always been like a math person? Were you always interested in sort of, you know, numbers and money or, you know, how, how did you, how did you land where you landed essentially, you know, yeah. start at the beginning? Okay. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was really uh, a math person at all. I was good at it, but it wasn't my passion. Um, I used to love to build things, um, mm. and, uh, wanted to be an engineer. Well, it actually ah. started as a car mechanic and my mom was like, um, <laughs> no, you're going to be an engineer if you're going to do something like that. Um, so I started college and engineering school and then just one thing led to another. Um, I graduated with an economics degree then decided to go back to grad school and got my master's in accounting and then got my MBA in marketing. Right. Um, and I think it was just, you know, uh, I, the one thing I think I realized as I was going through school and then just like my first job is, is I definitely thrived in an environment that was fact-based and mm -hmm. uh, numbers give you that. So. Right. And when, I mean, it's interesting. So, you know, I think of marketing as more is like softer um, but I think the more people that I meet who are sort of industry veteran CPG people, when they're talking about marketing, they're talking about fact-based. They're talking mm. about numbers and analytics and things like that. Is that, I mean, tell me about the marketing piece of the MBA for you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I, I, have, a, I have a very creative side. And mm -hmm. when I started to study marketing, Initially, I was like, this is my passion. This is what I was made to do. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I had a role in, in marketing. Um, and I realized as fun as it sounds, it is very fact-based, but it's also very, um, it's extremely detail-oriented in mm -hmm. a way that doesn't actually allow that much creativity, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that um, when I realized that, that's when it was like the aha moment that, mm -hmm you know, if it is going to be fact-based to a certain degree, if it's going to be that detail-oriented, um, then, then going down the finance accounting path was definitely the right thing. For right. Me. I totally um, get that. Yeah. And I it, think it's yeah. changed, right? Marketing is definitely, to your point, it's changed. It started off with this very, you know, you like a creative mindset, but today mm -hmm. it's all about ROI and building out a brand strategy, which isn't quite as soft skills right. before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's in that balance, right? Yeah. And and that's what we're all trying to figure out. You know, you I mean, there's something about, you know, some we did we just completed a brand refresh and I was talking to someone and they're like, "Did you do, you know, consumer testing or something?" And I was like, mm, "No." Like, <laughs> I think it looks pretty. So, I mean, literally that. So, and there is something to that, like as a young brand, you can kind of get away with that. And that, that personality really shines through and, you know, hopefully you don't lose that as you get bigger and more mature and eventually, you know, become sort of the, the big kid on the block. But, um, so how, how did you land at Sir Kensington's and, you know, Sir Kensington's is a little bit of like a legendary, you know, sort of story, I think in the CPG community, it, it, kind of came on the scene quickly. I like to just tell everyone like 
Haven's Kitchen at our little shop when it was still a shop in 2012. We were like early, early people to have Sir Kensington's on our shelf. Um, so it wasn't, it didn't feel like overnight to, to some of us, but it definitely kind of came on the scene, grew really quickly. We've had Pat on, we had Scott on, you know, we, I mean, we had Grace on, we've had a bunch of Sir Kensington's folks on, um, and then it, you know, was acquired by Unilever and you were there from when it was kind of just this emerging startup through that acquisition, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I actually joined Sir Kensington's only about a year before the acquisition. Okay. Um, and it was interesting because they had just begun expanding outside of the, the Whole Foods arena. Yeah. So it was the right time for them to like bring me on, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just the precipice for them. And they had no idea that they were going to go so quickly. Right. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I feel like every acquisition starts with, we need to fundraise and then (laughs) you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, But yeah, that was, it, it happened really quickly when it's, when it started to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as kind of like my journey there, I, you know, I, uh, I've worked at a lot of large companies through my career and, uh, you know, uh, I started very traditional route. I worked at Deloitte and Touche and audit, had a bunch of clients. I think that's when I first started to realize that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to do finance and accounting mm-hmm. and not be passionate about who I was doing it for. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of led me to that journey of, you know, consumer products in some, in some shape or form. So right. I, I started at at Cody beauty. And, um, it was just that human connection with the brand. Right. And, um, and I loved working there and then realized that like food is such a big part of who we are and it's mm-hmm. the true social connector. Mm-hmm. Um, so from Cody is where I decided I need to go into a much larger space and really explore food and, and, you know, uh, health, wealth, beauty, all of that stuff. Right. Um, and landed my job at Unilever this way before the Sir Kensington's days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, work through the ranks. I was very deliberate. You know, I think that's the one thing I give myself a little bit of credit. When you're young, you don't really know what you want to do. Right. Um, but you, one of kind of my focuses was how do I continue to build my experience and expertise mm-hmm. with larger companies, bigger brands, and also work through the different roles in the company. So, right. You know, Unilever is known for their um, ability to move individuals mm-hmm. around very quickly um, without it being like a management program. Right, right. And uh, yeah, and so so I just continue to build kind of my experience throughout, basically the way I, I look at it is throughout all the financials. You know, right, started- no, and giving you like this bigger sort of like it's- picture of the ecosystem so you knew that the financial decisions didn't happen in a vacuum, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And I think that's something that people forget, right? You get mm-hmm. so lost in the weeds um, that if, but you do have to start there and then right. it starts to really like build on each other. Um, and that's, that's what I felt my experience was doing. And it yeah. was, you know, everything from the trade, to then the supply chain to being brand finance focused. Um, and then taking on a more like controller role, um, to oversee overheads, um, right. all of that started to build and started to now create what is, you know, a true head of finance look like and 
what is that experience that that person needs. And so after, I mean, I just, I, we're going to get into brass tacks after the break for sure. But after, so you were really, I mean, I'm assuming you were sort of in a perfect position to help Sir Kensington's when Unilever came knocking, because <laughs> to some extent you knew what they needed to get, to get their shit together, essentially. Yeah. I mean, assuming you had it together, but like the next level of getting it together. Um, and then how did you, after they sold, you stayed for a bit and then how did you end up at Hugh? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think with Sir Kensington's, when I, when I got there, it was very, it was very like personally driven, right? I'd worked for Nestle, I'd worked for Unilever, worked for all these big companies that had basically now set me up for, I understand what this role should look like. Yeah. So Kensington's was perfectly primed, right? They were just at that precipice, Whole Foods, they were crushing it, Whole Foods, but now they were looking at expanding distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to come in and, and allow them to understand like what kind of what one process, what process do you need, right? When right. you're starting to expand um, that quickly, that fast, and what kind of metrics should we all be looking at as a company? Um, and then kind of just fast forwarding in that one year, we went through an audit, you know, uh, there was all of like the processes around board reporting and like all of that mm-hmm. got created. So in one year, it's amazing. I think it's like, you know, startup world is truly, uh, one year in a startup world is like 15 years. Right. Else. Right. Right. So, <laughs> um, so in that one year we were able to like learn all this about the business, really set it up from a financial perspective of like, what does this company stand for? What is the strategic roadmap? And when Unilever came knocking, um, we were sort of poised, right? We were ready. We, we understood mm-hmm. where the gaps were. Um, but we also were really proud of what we'd built and they, mm-hmm. were, they, you know, I mean, let's face it. We may have started, you know, so Kensington started with ketchup, but right. ultimately our, you know, our cash cow was our mayo. Yeah. Uh, mayo was killing it. And, you know, Unilever owns Hellman's. So yep. it was the perfect kind of um, co- like combination of brands to come together right. so that they could capitalize on market share where Hellman's would never reach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then from the the financial perspective, we had set up the company properly in terms of just you know the, the simple some some of the simple stuff, right? Monthly reporting. Right. Well, we're gonna sure get. That, I'm gonna. We are yeah. going to get very detailed on how to set things <laughs> yeah. up properly. You're gonna basically like make a bulleted list, and everyone's gonna take <laughs> notes in about five minutes. Okay. <laughs> you just in like I literally was like metrics to look at. What does that look like? Head of fun. I like been taking notes as you've been talking, like saving it for strategic roadmap, question mark, question mark. Right. Um, but tell me just about Hugh for, for the next yeah. minute or so. And then we're yeah. going to like go back. I mean, I, I think I was just the, the best decision I've ever made in my, in my professional career was going to Sir Kensington's. It opened yeah. up all the roads for me to really, um, you know, get into the startup world and, you know, I think anyone that's worked for a large company comes with such great experience, mm-hmm. but the empowerment um, you get in working for a startup is unparalleled. And yep. working alongside the CEO from Sir Kensington's, Mark mm-hmm. Ramadan, um, he had moved over to Hugh 
um, I had moved on to another company, but we left the door open. We were, mm-hmm. we just, you know, I think that there's, like working together, figure yeah. out that there's that special sauce between you and somebody else. And mm-hmm. it just works. Um, we knew that at some point we were going to come back together and work together again. So Amazing. he basically brought me over. And, and how do you say no to a chocolate company? Yeah, no. <laughs> and I mean, again, you, you got acquired. So yes. um, <laughs> you're like, I don't know, you're like the tooth fairy, but for <laughs> like brand acquisition. So <laughs> did you, did you know that was going to happen? I mean, I'm assuming you just came and you, you were there again to sort of get things ready. Order. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, we definitely didn't know. Um, to be honest, when I interviewed with the board members and and the and the founders, in their mind, they were like, oh, "We're not selling anytime soon." There's there's so many things we still want to do with this mm-hmm. brand. Um, and again, you know, you, we we started the fundraising round, and we discussed how do we bring in strategics. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a great board as it is. But, it, you know, you always want to make sure that you're tapping into all the resources available to you. Right. So we started the fundraising knowing we didn't necessarily have to externally fundraise, but it's also a really great way to get some. Bring good people in. Your brand. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, and yeah, so so I didn't start knowing that we were going to go down the acquisition route. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a lot of similarities between when you're setting up a company for fundraising to what an acquisition requires, they're very similar in that first round of how you manage, um, you know, manage those discussions and the expectations. So we'd already started to go down that path. And then again, it was just this amazing opportunity of, you know, finding the right partner. Yep. Amazing. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about all of these things because we all need help. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Fulton Stall Market is a nonprofit indoor public farmer's market. It offers locally grown and produced healthy and affordable fresh food to the Seaport and Lower Manhattan community. Fulton Stall Market is a direct sales outlet for over 100 New York region farmers and small batch independent food producers. They have been operating as a public market to serve the Seaport community since 2015. While you shop at Fulton Stall Market, you can pick up a few guides from Escape Maker's informational kiosk. Escape Maker connects urbanites with local farm, winery, craft beverage, and culinary getaways within a day's drive or train ride of New York City. Learn about day trips from New York, where you can explore the best agritourism the region has to offer. Learn more at fultonstallmarket.org and escapemaker.com. I'm back with Monisha Kushalani, CFO of Hugh. Okay. Okay. So I... Like I had actually like, let's start by this. And now I'm just like crossing that off basically. Okay. As a head of finance, you, you know, you said that it was kind of the perfect time for you to come in because 
you know, Sir Kensington's had been sort of like crushing it at Whole Foods and that is great. And then playing in sort of the world of conventional and mass is a very different ballgame. Um, and you knew exactly what that job needed to be and you knew what that role should look like. So tell me what that role looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think as companies start to expand, especially into conventional, um, and mass market, you definitely need to understand what does your trade portfolio look like? Um, you know, it's one of the most, I guess, uh, it's the most investment you're going to put behind your brand and you want it done right. Um, so immediately when you're starting to expand out of kind of the specialty markets, you want to make sure that you're thinking ROI, you're thinking about all the slotting costs. And that's just one aspect, right? The one aspect is let's think about trade promotional planning. What does that look like? Per account. So you're saying like you really want to know if your investment at Kroger is worth it and or if you need to spend a little more money on target or is that what you mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 per account, but it's also so one side of it is the company's goal, right? You want to mm-hmm. get a target, what do you have to do? The other side is what does target actually expect from you? Mm-hmm. Right? So if they expect turns to be three units per store per week, right, and you don't even have a track record of that, what is that an indicator that you may not actually succeed? So potentially push it off until mm-hmm. you figure out the right price point, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's the spend aspect, but then there's what is the right uh, you know uh, pack and price architecture that you should enter into these stores with, okay. and I think that's a huge unlock because I think um, a lot of you know really like great brands that are. Uh, you know, good quality ingredients, selling in Whole Foods, they don't know how to translate that brand into a conventional space where that consumer doesn't have $10 to spend. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so it's about understanding what's that kind of price pack architecture as well as the investment. And then take all of that and now understand what does that mean in terms of cash flow? Yeah. How much are you going to bleed out in all of this promotional slotting spend and how long is it going to take for you to make that back? Right. Um, so I think it's that's where someone that has worked a lot in larger companies, you do a lot of trade analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one key area. And so that seems to be sort of like the modeling finance piece that you're yep. not going to get just from having a bookkeeper or just by, you know, having someone on board who can close the books and like track your, you know, receivables and pay your bills and close the month. And so what what did you suggest? I mean, a lot of us, that's a delta, right? That that is tricky because when you're sort of young and emerging, you know, you can find people to close the books and you get a P&L and a balance sheet and a cash flow. And then there's over kind of across the bridge, there's what you're talking about, which is this more complex modeling. Should we even go into these stores, right? A lot of emerging brands make mistakes and go into things too early because they want you and that's exciting, but you're not ready for it. Um, But we can't afford that, that finance person. Um, so, you know, what do we do? And, and when, when is the right time? I mean, is there, is there a, 
And I, and I think one more question, sorry, just to pile on the questions, but <laughs> Sir Kensington's kind of notoriously was almost like the last of the traditional grow it in natural, build it regionally, and then expand to sort of more forward thinking conventionals and then into, you know, they, they, that was the roadmap. Yep. And now I feel like brands are launching in Target you know, yeah. without even looking at a Whole Foods or, you know, a local natural store. Um, so how do you, how would, you know, if you were me and you know, I'm not like, I can't, I can't pay ahead of finance right now. It's just not a job for, you know, I think a brand that's kind of like under, you know, five to seven in sales, I think. Um, how would you bridge the gap? Yeah. So I- I mean, I, I think of it in two different ways. Um, okay. I think one is I don't I don't personally actually believe that if you're under like a 10 million mark, should you even bring in like a CFO? Right. I think you should look for more firepower in, on your finance team. But mm-hmm. I don't think you need that level until you get to that 10 right. million. Right. Right. And we know like the statistics of like companies making it to 10 million are actually rare right so everyone gets to that five to seven and then that last jump to that 10 is the hardest so Mm -hmm. almost don't bleed the cash if you don't need to Mm -hmm. so the way i would look at it is you know uh, i think startups fail for a couple of different reasons they they run out of cash they aren't able to raise cash fast enough um, or at the right time Um, and then the third is there's no strategic business plan so i think the way to look at it is when are you ready as a company to truly start building a strategic plan? And that is probably the time that you want to bring in kind of that star power. And it doesn't have to be a CFO. It could be, you know, it could be a senior director of finance, but someone that has had enough experience with forecasting, with budgeting, with um, more like long-term visions rather than closing the books. Got it. Um, and then you also brought up, and this is, you know, I, this is happening with us right now. We now have a board. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little tiny board, but it is a board nonetheless. And even though I speak to sort of our like lead, you know, investment partner almost daily, and he's an absolute dream, I am starting to get ready for like quarterly reporting. Yeah. Um, And we're doing it, you know, not for me to sort of like show him something he doesn't already know, but more just to sort of set up best practices for the company. Um, So tell me about, you know, what you've learned over the years, because as you said, when you were at Sir Kensington's, it was like, that's where, you know, when they started doing like real board reporting um, and you got some good advice along the way. And I'm just curious, like, how you would break down a good board report. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think um, board reporting is really important. And I think there's a few reasons for it. One, you want to make sure that you're providing your investors mm-hmm. with the reassurance that the company is being run in a fiscally responsible manner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second is to highlight the performance of the company, not just with the historical you know, what, what's happened, but with that future outlook, are you on mm-hmm. track to deliver what you said you were going to deliver? You know, at the end of the day, your investors have trusted you with their 
cash. So are you are you actually delivering on that shareholder value? Right. And then I think that third piece is allowing the board to provide the expertise in terms of any opportunities you could unlock or any risk mitigation. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, our board members are usually have years of experience, whether it's directly in you know the industry that you're in or with the product or not, but they are, they're like a plethora of resources. Right. So it's almost, you know, how do you turn a board deck and a, and a meeting into, here's what's going really well, here's where I need your help. Right. Um, I think the way that I always think about building a board deck is very simply, you know, you, you start with like financial results. That's just a good uh, wage for them to feel comfortable that, you know, you know what you're doing, the company's being run, here's, you know, uh, here's the results. Then you look at kind of a market and competitive overview. Where do you stand in terms of your competitors? What does that mean in terms of price point or share? If, if you're even if you're even there, right? In terms mm-hmm. of grabbing share, but what do you look like in terms of your competitor? Right. And then what is the the cash runway the company is currently looking at? And yeah. you know you may have just gone through a, a round of fundraising, so it may not be as relevant. But it will be. We'll always no, it, be it comes up pretty mind. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, like I was like, wow, amazing. Look at that. And I'm like, oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> like, yeah, where exactly. where to go? Where to go? And then there's like, you know, you look at the end of the year and you're like, wait, what? But then some of it's like due to you. So there's like outstanding stuff and you're like, okay, phew, at least it's coming, I guess. Money is so weird. It's, it's so easy to spend and yet, and yet quite challenging to make. Um, okay. So yeah, I mean, going back to sort of this like cash bleed, uh, you know, I think that that, that does come up as kind of like a lot of companies, I just remember, and I've, I've said this before, and I sound like such a ding-dong, but hopefully people by now know that I'm hopefully not a ding-dong, but I remember when I first opened the cooking school, mm-hmm. and I, you know, we had a, 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 you know, a POS system, like a cash register, right? And every day I would look at it, and I remember when we hit a million dollars in sales, and... Um, I just remember being like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. We're amazing. And then I got, you know, something from the accountant that was like, you know, that we had lost $400,000 that year, which is normal. And like, that is what it is, you know, and it was fine. And, you know, we broke even the next year, but I remember being like, but wait, but no, because we made a million dollars and just how silly it was. And yet I think a lot of us make that mistake on a, on a different, maybe not as, you know, obvious level, but, um, we're not realizing the cash is going, um, you know, and, and that cash management is, is really critical. So this is why, you know, a lot of times we talk about, yeah, it's very important to get a P and L every month, but it's also very important to look at a cash flow, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that one of the biggest pitfalls that happen in in smaller companies is um, not that attention to detail on the cash model. Right? right. People are looking at a bank account and mm-hmm. they're looking at a PL and they're looking at results. But cash a cash model is one of the most essential 
financial statements for a small company. And I think the, you know, it, it's important for like so many different reasons, but like very simply put, it's, it's like what you said, right? You, you made a million dollars, that's something to celebrate, but then you lost 400. Mm -hmm. So what happened, right? What are you, wh where did, was it, was it the right thing to do? Possibly, right. yes. Most of us are actually cash poor and are not mm -hmm. profitable, you know? Right. Um, but I think it's imperative to know it because it is the first signal to when you need to start to fundraise. Right. And if, and if you wait too long, right, you become desperate, potentially undervalue your company. If you do it too early, you don't even have a clear line of sight on mm -hmm. what you really need and how long that's going to last you. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, just at a high level, it's really important to constantly look at it. But I think that in terms of like bleeding cash, I think one of the critical things that happens in smaller companies is all of the deductions and chargebacks right. we get, right? Yeah. We work with distributors. They they basically rob us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we got a bill for, we got a bill that hit us in February from UNFI for something that happened that they didn't account for properly in 2019. Oh, we, we got the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, whoops. And we're like, wait. What? Yeah, exactly. We did, did not account for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's where it's really important because to your point, everyone in the company works so hard to build their sales, which is your AR. Mm -hmm. And if you don't actively manage that AR, right, you're not going to reap the benefit of all those that effort. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really important. And, and Probably, in my mind, the most important role that a company should have when they first start is, is, is making sure that we're getting paid. AP manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so for those of us, like we were saying, you know, we're under 10 million in sales. We um, aren't quite ready for, you know, our own internal person. And, and we go with this sort of fractional or outsourced quote unquote, CFO model type of thing. Um, there are a few of them and, you know, you know, we're working with one. Um, what do you, how would you advise a company to evaluate these firms? What should that scope look like? How much should we be paying them based on sort of the, that general scope? And what, what, what are we looking? Because I feel like a lot of times with a lot of outsourced or service providers or agencies in general, there's just like a misalignment mm -hmm. from the company to that, to, that, to that other service provider on what the scope should be and what expectations should be. Yeah. And so you get these bills and you're like, wait, what? And then they're like, well, that was, you know, that's outside of the scope so it was another hour of whatever. So very briefly, if you were doing this as an outsource provider, what would your scope be essentially? Well, I, I think I think you started with what the biggest problem is. It's setting kind of the budget, right? I think mm -hmm. every company needs to set that ahead of time and mm -hmm. then create the scope. So what do you Got need it. this what do you need this company to do for you? Is it to close your books? Is it to do your board reporting and to make sure that you're asking all the right questions? And you and I were just chatting about this a little bit mm -hmm. earlier, but you know, do they have the expertise in what you need, right? So the last thing you want is them to bill you for the training you're providing them, 
mm-hmm. right? So do they have the right industry knowledge? So one, if it's CPG, do they have that? Two, are you a D2C, a, a more D2C model than a distributor model, right? And if right. that's the case, then they, you need to tap into the resource that has that specific expertise. Right. And then you need to be very realistic with them. This is my budget. What can you do within this budget? I'll tell you, I've even gone as kind of, uh, it's, it almost sounds a little crude, but it's really because I want to stay on top of how much we spend. I set a budget and I tell them I need basically a weekly marker of how much time is being sent towards this budget. Right. I mean, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think part of the problem is I don't even know what I don't know. So I, you know, I've started saying like, I need a monthly burn. Like for me, just as a human, it's very helpful to me to understand like generally more or less on any given month, what are we spending? And that doesn't include when you get those big trade spend things because you open a new account or you get that random UNFI charge back, but generally what's my burn? Um, Or, you know, I like to have with the monthly reporting, I like to know what, what cash I have and what runway that is based on that monthly burn and the growth that we anticipate. Right. Um, but what are some of the other things that we might not even know to ask for? Those metrics that that we really want to to have, you know, yeah, just a weekly or a, you know, monthly, just real fundamental understanding of financially, so that we can run our business more effectively. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, besides kind of just the normal P and L metrics, right? You want to know your gross, your net, your gross margin your mm-hmm. EBITDA, right? Those are like the, the key financial metrics you should want to know every single month. And product top, margin or? And product margin, yeah. Uh, to me, gross margin, product margin are, are very tied together. Yeah. Um, but yes, correct, and product margin. So those are very important, and that's the true, here's how your business is performing. I think right. the nuts and bolts that you also, I think anyone needs to really think about and understand is, what are your days on hand of inventory? Yeah. People don't look at it, but it's it's a really big area where you spend a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. You can very quickly bleed out money if you're building inventory that you don't need. Or the other side of that is you're not building an inventory and now you potentially are going to face out of stocks. Right. So I th- it's just an area that people don't, it's not yeah. on a dashboard, but it right. should be. Yeah. Um, and then to your point, it should always be what is your burn rate and how many months do you have left? Right. So what's the estimate? If you continue to burn at the rate you are today, what is your what will your cash flow look like in three months, six months and nine months? And when will you what, what is that trigger? Right. What is it the trigger to raise funds as soon as you hit a million bucks? Or right. Whatever it is for the company. Uh, but those are the key metrics. Right. And each one of those ties into the other, right? And then the last piece is your AR. You want to make sure that your aged AR is as low as possible. Mm-hmm. You're collecting cash quickly because likely you're paying cash quicker. Most right. people, you know, most startups, we don't actually negotiate hard for our payment terms right. because We're, we don't have the leverage. Yeah. Right. Um, so you want to just make sure that your AR is turning quickly, um, because the other piece of this that becomes really important is 
all of these metrics are the key metrics if a company decides to get a line of credit. Right. You know, this is like the true financial health of the company. So the, the kind of the P&L metrics talk about how are we delivering on this, like the strategic goals we set. Right. You know, the AR is how liquid are you? Uh, your days on hand is also tied to that because it's an asset. And then lastly, you're, you know, looking at your cash runway. And those are all the metrics that you would have to actually defend to either an investor or a bank. Right. Amazing. That's super helpful. So when you looking back at Sir Kensington's and you sort of like came from the bigger companies and you knew that you would, you know, you were clearly obviously super well qualified for the role, but there were lessons that you learned um, being that kind of connected to, you know, like you were the financial heart of the company. Um, so what would you say were some of the biggest lessons that you learned, not only sort of in that period of really rapid growth, but also that period of, of acquisition and how did it inform when you went to Hugh kind of the, the way that you hit the ground running there? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I think you're giving me a lot of credit. I don't know if any <laughs> of us think we actually know everything. Um, no. I think the, the, the one beauty is if you have a really great network and a great set of support systems that you can trust, you know that you're never alone. Right. And you can bounce off ideas off of other individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I went to Cirque, one of the biggest kind of, I don't know if it's a lesson, but it is to me mm-hmm. to a certain degree that I learned is understanding the strategic partners that companies find, whether it's through fundraising or even through an acquisition, right. is asking the question of what is their goal, right? So what is their vision for this company? And you can do that as early as asking that to the board, mm-hmm. because that's your early indicators of, you know, is, is the board kind of in it for, a long-term tenure, this company is going to grow into a platform or is it, you guys are great at what you do. You, you know, you can't start selling ice cream tomorrow. So Mm -hmm. likely your acquisition, you should think about kind of the road to acquisition. Right. But then once you get to thinking about what does your board want, what do your founders want? What do you want? Then you have to ask yourself, who's that strategic partner and what do they want? So to me, one of the key things that I learned is you know, we talk a lot about growing the business, growing it profitably, um, but we don't actually, we didn't spend too much time growing the gross margin. We did, mm. we did what we could, but we, it was, it was really tough. Our ingredients were top notch. Yep. Sourcing is so difficult when you're small. Uh, yep. Getting to scale is so difficult. Um, and I, I mean, every startup has their challenges with co-manufacturing. So yeah. You know, I think without that focus on gross margin, you are not as um, you're you're just you're not as um, as enticing to an acquirer because right. it shows that you will likely take a lot more work to become self-sustaining. Well, I think also it's interesting, right? Because optics, right? There there are these brands out there, and I only kind of know. I don't know. It's inside baseball stuff that I hear. So who even knows if it's real, right? But there are these companies out there and like the brand is killing it. 
right? They are everywhere. They're cooking with gas. You're like, oh my gosh, they're huge. Even the sales, you hear these sales numbers and you're like, geez, Louise. But then you're like, you have no idea if they're just like burning like crazy, right? Like, and I mean, I, I think coming from brick and mortar again, everyone who listens to this on the regular knows that like, I am, first of all, I'm 48. Oh, I'm 49 now as of last week. Um, So I think I'm just sort of like, oh, you know, I got to save my pennies. Like I have a little bit of like, I'm not a young freewheeling dude who's like, we're just going to like gun hard for sales and like gross margins be damned. Right. A and B, I come from brick and mortar, which is like the idea of spending money that you haven't made is is like loony to, mm. to people in that business. Right. So, yeah. um, but I think also, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of brands are under the misconception that they don't have to worry about gross margin because if sales are good enough and they, and they get acquired, then everything will just kind of be resolved, you know, by whoever's acquiring them, which might be true, but it does affect your valuation and it does make you less, of a target, I would think. Is that yeah. what you're saying? I, I completely agree. I, I, you know, I th- again, I think it just goes back to like, what's the goal of of the acquirer? Because to your point, right? I think everyone talks about gross margin a lot more. Um, everyone's in tune to it a lot more, but the trade-offs are are always very easy, right? Uh, if you have to spend a little bit more at this at the sake of gross margin, you're likely to do it and say, well. I have enough cash to cover myself. That's mm-hmm. fine. But I'm at least I'm growing the business, right? I'm growing right. the business and it'll pay for itself mm-hmm. because then you think that you'll get to scale. I think if if I think about like our acquisition uh, from Cirque to, to Unilever, you know, I, the one thing I will say is they, the intention was for them to have us operate independently, but to actually roll us up into their portfolio, right? So mm-hmm. so what happens with that is what is that synergy model now? Right. And and if if in their mind all they want to get to is a like a synergy model, then everything below gross margin doesn't actually matter to them because they figure over time, two, three years, whatever, that team will be disbanded. Mm-hmm. They'll be able to figure out the right resources. Mm-hmm. But gross margin is the thing that really is the value that they're purchasing. Got it. And if that isn't high enough, then it, nothing below it is going to be self-sustaining. Right. Interesting. So that will hurt your valuation. I think that was something, you know, as soon as we were acquired, you know, reflecting on it a year later, I remember saying to Mara, if I could go back mm-hmm. and give ourselves the advice, I would say, tell Unilever to hold off for one more year and allow us to build that gross margin because that's getting to that level of scale for us would have created a whole different different of level of right yeah and so i guess that that's a good question let's lean into that a little bit because i think you know i've had many guests on who've been like not i'm not worrying about gross margin right now and you know i'm always again like a little bit of the fuddy duddy who's like well you know Um, but you know, there's, there's a few ways to do it, right? Obviously, you know, no one wants to sacrifice the integrity of their ingredients. No one wants to cut corners, um, 
you know, in terms of process, right? Like we could have hot filled our sauces and instead of, you know, my tolling would be a third of the price. Um, but you know, to solve for that, I, I basically like built a partnership with a co-packer who was able to give me not the price of a hot fill, but half the price of what I was paying, you know, elsewhere for the HPP supply chain and they own a chunk of my company and it was the best decision I ever made. Um, but what are some, you know, once you kind of are going along and you're trucking along other than, you know, going line by line through your ingredients and trying to figure out, you know, the best way to renegotiate with a co-packer, um, what are some things that people can do if they're like, okay, thank you, Monisha. I'm going to go focus on my gross margins now. Like, what do they do now? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, I, I wish I had kind of the silver bullet. I think that there's <laughs> just different things though, right? So to, to your point, I think that getting a co-investment with the co-manufacturer is really smart because they start to scale with you. They build with you. They feel you're paid. Mm-hmm. And now you've actually created a very different collaborative relationship. Yeah. And um, the business is viable. I mean, yeah. my business would not be viable. It, like we pouch fill and HPP oh. and it's a, it's a refrigerated distribution. It's, it's like the worst of the worst of the worst, <laughs> which makes the product really special and delicious. And like, we've built a nice little moat around it, yeah. um, but it's really wickedly expensive. You know? Yeah, I mean, I I I feel you. We we go through the same thing at, at Q with uh, mm-hmm. we have to re- you know refrigerate our our products when we send it out. But I think the other piece is to really think about how do you negotiate the price tearing, right? So okay, yeah, this I don't understand. Yeah, right. When you're subscale, you start at one place. When you get to the second level, can you negotiate down? So so those, that's like another way. But then it's also what is this like model of MOQs look like? So right. what would it take for a company to deliver margin savings to you? So just you know, so everyone understands, MOQ is minimum okay. order quantity. Yeah, and no, no, that's okay. I, I, uh, sometimes it happens. Um, <laughs> the acronyms of CPG, which stands for Consumer Product. Consumer packaged goods, right? Um, (laughs) So MOQ can get you in the sense that there's a minimum order quantity of 50,000 units. You as a company are only selling 10,000 and you end up paying for a $40,000 extra that end up you have to also pay to give away or to dispose of. Is that what you mean? Uh, Yes. Or or, or the other way is Uh you are... You, you're actually trying to basically, you know, get on shelf faster mm-hmm. and you're purchasing at a much lower quantity, right? Got so it. have you actually asked about what is that MOQ break? So I see. How know, do so I get today, it to the next level? Right. 25 cents and you're ordering a million and at set 25, what is the next threshold? Mm-hmm. And could you actually hold inventory? And would the cost of holding inventory be cheaper than the right. cost of buying at that low level. Got it. Got it. Okay. You know, and that, that's, I think, but this also goes back to the first thing we were talking about is, you know, as you start to build scale, these are the considerations you have to make. When do you want to grow top line? Cause you actually can find savings by growing top line. 
Right. And, and have to sacrifice some of your margin at the beginning to know that the faster I grow, I will get to these kind of price breaks. Right. And also balancing that with, but I might also spend a lot of cash yeah. You know, like we're always trying to be like, well, if we order 50, then it's this. But if we order 100, then it's that. But, you know, yeah, yeah. I understand. OK, so as you were grooming Hugh um, for their fundraise slash turning into an acquisition, um, you know, what at the next level, you know, I'm assuming a lot of these things are fundamentals and they sort of stay fundamental, whether you're, you know, a baby, a toddler, or a teenager. But what are some of the things that, you know, maybe you focused on there that you hadn't focused on earlier or at an earlier stage company? Yeah, I mean, I think with, with Hugh, um, they were definitely at a, they were much larger than Sir Kensington's was right. when we were acquired. Um, and with Hugh, it was more about ensuring we had, so th- you know, Mark had done a great job of creating what this, oh, the overarching strategic goals of the company look like, right? Mm-hmm. Where did we want to be in three years? But it was really getting down to the nitty gritty. Where would we grow? Where did we want to grow? How did we want to grow? Um, and we spent a lot of time as a leadership team discussing that price pack architecture, right? What what does it look like to launch in a target and what is that price point? I mean, huge chocolate bars are expensive and mm-hmm. launching a five ninety nine bar in Target likely will be delisted in five months. Right. Right. And that that so the conversation became less about grow at any cost, but how do we tactically grow in which areas? What would we have to do? So so some of the things that we started to think about are how do we start to, and, and I think the other piece that even kind of tied to the gross margin is how do you ensure that the scale you want the company to be in two or three years, because that's the vision you're selling, right, mm-hmm. to an acquirer, you actually have the infrastructure to set yourself up for that. Because right. I think that's the other piece that we like. we all fall into this is, we say that the company can grow 100x for the next three years, but right. our co-manufacturer can't actually grow 100 right. times. You know, right. so so have you actually set up the right infrastructure to even right. allow that growth? Um, and I think that so we and we were really fortunate at Hugh. The leadership team is, was amazing, right? Everyone had been through one acquisition with another company before. Mm-hmm. Everyone had led. Uh, led the the process to acquisition. So we all kind of came in knowing, here are the pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Here's what we have to start focusing on. And how do we get the company to get behind this? And I think this is like the the simplest, but the biggest unlock is the transparency to results. I think that, you know, uh, sharing quickly and early on any issues that you as a leadership team are seeing in terms of financial health or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cash runway, um, the faster you share it with key individuals or a whole company, if, if that's, you know, if that's what you want to do, it, the quicker you now have a collective ownership to those results. Right. Okay. And I think that that's what was really we started to do it at Sir Kensington's and at Hugh, it was like the immediate, it was my day one task was bring transparency to the board, 
to the board members and to every person in the company around every single area. Because when you started to decouple all of the information around days on hand, uh, mm-hmm. around the margin evolution, about how much we were spending in trade, now every person that was leading those areas felt that sense of ownership. Got and it. I think that's actually what was kind of our key to success with with the um, merger. Yeah, I mean, that that's amazing. I think that's actually like an incredible place to stop. I have one final question. <laughs> if we were to sit down tomorrow at Haven's Kitchen and I was like, okay, I want to make this strategic plan. You've given me all of the financial sort of pieces that need to be a part of it. Like, what would what would that look like to you? Would it be a one-page document? I mean, like, because we think of strategic plan, like, who are we? A little bit, again, like, more about the brand evolution. Like, we know we don't want to do private label right now because we know we want, you know, people to recognize the brand. And we know generally what stores we want to go into. And we generally know what, you know, what new categories we want to go into and how we want to think about innovation. But like, how would you even start the discussion of this is what a strategic plan, what are those buckets? Yeah. For you? Um, I think that's a really great question. I think it's exactly where you just started, right? You start with what is the vision and then mm-hmm. you actually turn it into what are the key KPIs and the building blocks. So if you don't want to do private label in your example, what are the channels you want to focus on? So you start Mm -hmm. building a true sales strategy, bottoms up. What do you want to sell? Where do you want to sell it? When do you want to sell it? What does that price point look like? How does that translate into your gross and net revenue? Mm -hmm. And then you go on to say, okay, today my gross margin is 30%. -hmm. My goal is to get this company to 50%. What would have to be true in order for that to happen? Does right. that mean I unlock raw materials? Does it mean I purchase a plant and right. now have full ownership of my destiny in terms right. of production? Right. Um, and you truly now take what is, you know, uh, a vision and you translate it into a financial, basically, building uh, a, a plan that shows that evolution come to life. Yep. Amazing. Okay. Anything else you want us to know us emerging brands that can't afford you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I actually think it's a lot simpler than you think. Um, I think that, you know, again, I, like I started my journey with saying how numbers and facts are, you know, uh, what kind of motivated me to to become a CFO. Right. I think you start with that. The numbers won't lie to you, right? If you look at where you are today and where you want to go, you 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 can't actually lie to yourself. You right. know you know how to build that plan. You know where you want to go, and and allow yourself to make mistakes and pivot. You know, I think that that's like been the that's like the most fun part of what we do is. We embrace the mistakes, we we uh, admit them early, and then mm-hmm. we fix them yeah. and allow yourself to go through that evolution because you'll you'll find who you are through that. Yeah, um, amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Monisha, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I, I want to like bullet out. I don't have show notes, really. People on podcasts talk about show notes. I don't think I have them unless, Amanda, I do somewhere. I just don't know it, but she'll tell me. 
Um, but I do, you know, I feel like on my LinkedIn post, when I post this, I'll bullet out everything that you said, cause it's, it's all very super helpful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Allison, for having me and congratulations to you. You've had an amazing year. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you. Um, Amanda, thank you for engineering like the best of them. And, um, I also just, Thank you so much for, you know, my team and Heritage, Matt, I know you were part of it too, for putting together that amazing little birthday thing that you guys did last week when I was away. I have never gotten a birthday present quite like that. Um, I've never felt as, I don't know, appreciated or loved. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, And I will be back next week with John Foraker on another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.